In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Streets Ahead, a podcast dedicated to active travel, livable streets, and people-focused urban design. I'm Laura Laker. I'm Ned Bolton. I'm Adam Tranter, and welcome to this, our fifth episode. So as we talked about in our last episode, it's all go at the moment for active travel. Um, In fact, we can't record episodes quick enough to keep up with the flurry of activity, and I'm barely keeping up with it in general, to be honest. Are things happening fast enough is the question. Um, Is it even possible to drive the change needed within the timeframe we have? One BBC News article has reported that three in five people don't feel safe enough to cycle. They need safe infrastructure and easy access to bikes. So will active travel get itself into a chicken and egg style situation? And which comes first? Demand to cycle or infrastructure to create demand? Many cycle advocates think the latter, but it's the former that's being pitched currently by government, with temporary infrastructure still weeks away from completion. And as well as our views, I've been speaking with Dr. Jonathan Kelly, who's a divisional manager at St. Bart's NHS Trust. I've also been speaking with Philip Danton, who's a chair of the Bicycle Association of Great Britain. Laura's been speaking with Councillor Adam Clark. He's a deputy mayor of Leicester, which is outside of London. And Ned has been speaking to um, himself in a, in a special report. It was interesting to talk to um, Councillor Clark because there's been a lot happening generally in Leicester. We were talking about our London bubble, um, not just in the last couple of weeks, but in the last couple of years. Um, some, a lot of stuff that I was unaware of, actually. I think it got a lot of coverage, the earlier stuff in Leicester, but, uh, but less so later. But yeah, I think as, as Ned's report's going to tell us, almost there's so many routes in London, if you're thinking about taking trips away from public transport and replacing them uh, with bikes and walking, there's so many routes that are going to be needed into, into towns, into, into the centre of the city and into towns around the country and cities around the country. 
that um, things are going to have to happen pretty sharpish. And as we will have all noticed, the traffic levels are starting to, to tick up. You mentioned um, which, well, we mentioned which comes first, the infrastructure or the cycling. I think just with the pause that we've had in traffic and activity on our streets, we've kind of had the infrastructure in a way in the quiet streets and that's generated the demand. But now it's a case of keeping those people on bikes with that temporary infrastructure and, and what that's going to, whether we're going to be able to do that and then what that's going to look like medium and long term. And what's it look, looking like in uh, in Lewisham, Ned? Yeah, I think Laura's got a good point. I, I would suggest that um, we are in some sort of, I mean, I hate to use, it's very, very much overplayed the kind of war jargon throughout this pandemic, both by government and other agencies. But but we are in a kind of, in terms of our, our campaign, if you like, for active travel, we're in a kind of phony war at the moment, because although lockdown measures have been relaxed and people have uh, been encouraged to go back to work, if that's appropriate, and schools, well, we still don't know really, uh, I still get the sense that there are lots of people cycling. The weather has been beautiful, continues to be beautiful, but they are um, heartwarmingly and very interestingly, the same people who we've seen over the last two or three weeks, by and large, who I've noticed who are supernumerary. And that tends to be families and uh, youngsters and little groups of friends going out on a bike, on their bike. And it doesn't look like it's... um utilitarian cycling, if you like, literally to get from A to B. No, so, so what we don't know, and what this is, I think, all about is whether or not we can bridge that, um, we, can, we can turn the one thing into the other and make it a seamless progression and capitalize on this enthusiasm and this liberty. So I, I think we're just beginning to ask those questions. And in order to answer them properly, we need to move faster. And I think that might be the gist of what we're going to be discussing over the, the coming pod. Yeah, I think also just in the interest of uh, regional balance, which is something that we are, are now hyper aware of, um, in the north, or as it's known to me, the the Midlands, um, the uh, the situation in Coventry isn't uh, isn't all bad, but it isn't uh, brilliant either. Um, my understanding is that actually councils don't even know how they're going to get the funding from the DFT and how much they'll get and whether it be means tested or whether they'll have to bid for it. So that's actually making like things not happen as uh, as quickly as possible. And in a city like Coventry, and I'm sure cities around the, the country, you're in a situation where there isn't much cycling happening anyway. And you know there is some demand recreationally, but when it comes to transport, you really need to build it if you want people to to come. So I think it it, it differs uh, everywhere in the in the country. But really, the point uh, the point of this podcast and the the reason we've talked to lots of guests is is this idea of chicken and egg. You know, is is will people start cycling uh, because it's the right thing to do and the government messaging tells them to, or will they have to start once it becomes safe? And I think a lot of people, um, you know, totally believe that the latter is true. Um, but we could well get into a situation where the former is is a situation we're in, which which won't be uh, the boom that we're hoping or expecting. And I think to bring it to life, um, Ned, uh, Ned, you went on a little ride, didn't you, from 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 Lewisham into Central London? I guess you would you would call it journalism, but to other people you would <laughs> to other people you would look like you're just talking to yourself. Um, and yeah. uh, but but this is this is the things you do. Yeah, um, I did. It was Monday morning. So it's yesterday morning. We we're recording this on Tuesday. And I I set off thinking, um, I wonder what's changed, you know, because I'd spent uh, a lot of the weekend looking at news feeds and, you know, in the echo chamber in which 
perhaps all of us are guilty of operating. It did seem like a lot of headlines are being generated and things needed seemed to be moving on quite quickly and stuff was going in over the weekend when the roads were super quiet. And so I was quite excited by what I might find. I had noticed um, over the weekend that in Greenwich, just up the road from me, if I, I'm, I do apologise once and I'm going to do a bulk apology for all my London centricity. Problem is we're in lockdown. I can't leave London, so I can only give you the evidence of my own eyes, right? So that's my apology done with. Um, but but in Greenwich, just up the road, I noticed that um, some temporary little yellow plastic barriers have gone out to widen the pavement. And there's some very constricted one-way systems around beautiful heart of um, uh, old Greenwich. And that had strangely unintended consequences because there's a lot of footfall on those pavements. Absolutely appropriate that those pavements were widened out into the road, but there's no room for cyclists on the pavement side of the barrier, no way, because that belongs to pedestrians. So the cyclists, of whom there are many, are now pushed into an even more constricted space with the vehicles who are trying to make their way through. So that struck me as um, interest, an interesting problem and perhaps an unexpected problem that has arisen. But that was the only evidence I had up until my, my commute on Monday morning of any of this um, emergency infrastructure going in. The interesting thing for me, from my perspective, was it was quite fun to pretend I had a job. But anyway, um, this is what happened. I'm going to take up one of my uh, opportunities to exercise today by jumping on my old knackered bike and uh, riding into Marble Arch I've chosen, uh, right in the centre of London. My starting point is Lewisham, which is, for those of you who, who don't know London that well, is... Um, it's about six miles away, I suppose, from Marble Arch, five or six miles away. So it's a fairly kind of representative commute for probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Londoners. So straight away, what I've noticed is that um, it's busier. I mean, it's um, it's nothing like the levels of traffic that you know, pre-lockdown existed, but it is definitely busier than it was a couple of weeks ago at least and the result of that is that it's a little bit uncomfortable because um, I think a lot of the drivers of these cars are feeling the freedom of the road and they can actually get somewhere a bit faster so they're they're putting their foot down and it just feels a bit a bit more intimidating than it usually is so I'm gonna uh, ride from Lewisham up to New, New Cross and then I'm gonna get off the main road and try and find some back streets off the main road now and uh, I'm going to head up and try and pick up Quiet Way 1 in London which is a wiggly route along back streets that's partially well laid out and partially pretty confusing but I know it quite well so it'll be uh, take me a little bit longer but hopefully it'll be a bit quieter well I'm very close to Tower Bridge now so really very central London and um, ever since I came off the main road these this backstreet route has been filling up with cyclists. I think I am a little bit too early to be honest. But what has been very noticeable is I have not been passed or have passed a single car, and that's over a good few miles of backstreet road, which is highly unusual. And I'm just wondering whether what motor traffic there is um, doesn't need to use the back streets in a way that it usually does, because the main arterial roads are not clogged up; they're flowing freely. So, what cars there are are on the main roads. Many people are out on bikes now. Now we're right in the heart of London. A lot of people just seem to be pottering about, going in entirely the opposite direction or crisscrossing around and uh, obviously doing sort of uh, little local journeys perhaps. But it's not the 
it's just a different pattern. It feels different from how it was uh, before lockdown when I used to use this route very often. Right, I'm on the uh, segregated cycle lane now, heading up towards Blackfriars Bridge, where they have a little counter, the C56 route for those who know, and I am the 401st cyclist, according to that slightly unreliable counter, to have passed that point so far today, which is half past eight. I don't know, is that a lot? Sounds quite a lot. So I'm on the uh, embankment cycle path now, and I'm going to turn off and head into Trafalgar Square and up the Mall towards Buckingham Palace. Now normally, when you come off this uh, segregated route here and try and turn up Northumberland Avenue to get into Tra Trafalgar Square, it's basically where, as Adam said the other day, the planners give up and you're on your own. And Northumberland Avenue to navigate as a cyclist and get to Trafalgar Square is normally a nightmare. And I wonder if uh, they've done anything about that. Let's have a look. Just turned off the uh, cycle lane now onto Northumberland Avenue and the answer to the question is no, they've not done anything. It's the same chaos it usually is. You're pushed out into the middle of the road by parked buses on the left-hand side. Uh, this is normally solid with traffic. Uh, two lanes of traffic for a road that doesn't really accommodate two lanes and uh, trying to pick your way through on a bike here to get to Trafalgar Square is nigh on impossible normally. Having said that, it's fine today because it's quite empty and it's still a beautiful day for a bike ride. Just passing Buckingham Palace now, there's a cycle lane, um, which is one of those cycles lanes, cycle lanes that hey, is not very clearly marked, so pedestrians quite understandably use it to walk on because they don't know it's a cycle lane. And B, just strikes me as slightly unnecessary because the roads around here are perfectly safe to cycle on and never feel constricted. Um, and it's one of the contradictions of planning, I always think that Sometimes you can put a cycle lane in where there's just because you can, if you see what I mean, because there seems to be ample space without necessarily the need for it. And where there is a need for it, so streets like Northumberland Avenue, um, that's where they don't happen. See what I mean? Does that make sense? So I came in search of temporary cycling and walking infrastructure, and I'm about to find it, I think, but it's, um, I've seen none of it on my whole journey right up until I've got to Park Lane. I'm just exiting Hyde Park now, and I think I can see the temporary cycle lane in front of me on Park Lane. Traffic's quite heavy on the road now, so uh, hopefully it's doing its job. There's a rider just ahead of me, wearing a tweed jacket, football shorts, and um, sort of long woolly explorer socks, which is which is fine, let him do it. It's about the width of a, well it is, it's the width of a, a regular uh, lane of, of, uh, for motor traffic. Big old blue barriers to my right, feel well protected by that. I've been on it for about 150 metres and I'm looking ahead, there's another maybe, maybe 100 metres to go. And the kind, kind of temporary little, what did Laura call them, those little sticky divider things. Um, there's only about 20 of them left. And uh, the lane has now come to an end. And I'm, yeah, I've got buses pulling in in front of me. And I'm basically just on Park Lane now. So that, okay, that I wasn't expecting. I need to get informed because um, I'm very glad that something is being done, but I was led to believe it was a bit more than that. So I've ridden six miles 
I've seen that and it was only a couple of hundred meters long. So anyway, I need to revert to Adam and Laura really to get some facts about um, what is in, in, still in the planning stage and will be enacted. It's just when you see you know, images of Milan and Paris and Berlin, they seem a lot further literally down the road than uh, London is. And, and I guess other cities in, uh, in the UK as well might be ahead of London. Um, but it, it does need to happen because at the, at the moment, if it stays like this, uh, it's not going to it's not going to change anybody's minds. So it's not going to provide any reassurance. It's not going. There's no extra space. There's no sense of security. Um, so this is Ned Bolting from Marble Arch in central London for Streets Ahead. I think from a positive point of view, um, Ned, you started your journey on. Quiet Way One, which is obviously an existing piece of uh, infrastructure, um, uh, you know, in that it's signed and lined and uh, is in a in a quiet part of uh, town. And, and I've ridden parts of that. I'm not an expert by any means, but you know, I found parts of it um, enjoyable. And I guess that would probably be if we are just to just to, for, to, to hypothesize that people may cycle even without lots of infrastructure. Quiet Way One is probably one of those things that not a lot of people. Uh, would know about um, because it's you know it's not like one of those main embankment routes, I guess. So, so that's the point. That's the point, isn't it? Or it's one of the points that um, uh, Quiet Way One is like a hidden secret squirrel thing. It's like this. I mean, it's, it's great. Oh no, actually, it's okay. It's fine. Mm. In part, it's not fine. In other parts, it's great, as you say. But um, it, you you kind of need to know it's there, and it's not obvious to the uninitiated remotely that it's there. Whereas if you so. Quite and again, you know, lots of people won't, won't know what I'm talking about here, but it kind of wiggles along parallel to a big road that is second only to Whitechapel Road in terms of its cheapness on the Monopoly board, um, called the <laughs> Old Kent, called the Old Kent Road. That's that's if you were just to ride in from Lewisham in the most direct way, you go along the Old Kent Road, which is a thunderous wreck of a road with about four different lanes of traffic and bus lanes. If we were um, seriously going to upset London cabbies and uh, lots of Londoners, but do this in the most um, front-footed way, we would be now coning off a section of the Old Kent Road to allow people. And so not only would that genuinely present an opportunity for people to, to get into London on bike in, this, in the quickest possible way, it would be the most visible, and this is the word, visibility, it would be the most visible statement um, that we could make about what is changing and what has to change in London. And I think my surprise at the pace of change or the lack of it that I perceive at the moment is that, you know, w astonishingly, we can build um, uh, seven um, uh, uh, intensive care hospitals with capacity of thousands of beds and ventilators in, in, in days. Um, but putting cones out seems to take quite a long time. We've been talking about this for a few weeks now, haven't we? Yeah, it does take a long time. I was talking to my, um, oh, I don't know if I should say actually who I was talking to. I was I was talking to a local council. Some I was talking to sources, um, top secret sources. They're basically saying that if you want to do um, like neighbourhood filtering schemes, like we were talking about last time, so just closing off uh, streets to through traffic, then it it can take weeks, uh, even under the kind of temporary or experimental traffic orders. And there's like a three week initial period and then a and then a one week cooling off period. So you're looking at four weeks, even after you've that's once you've decided that you're going to do it. So it can be quite slow. But you do wonder, like you say, Ned, and um, of course, 40,000 people a year die of uh, air pollution related disease of air pollution alone. And then there's all the uh, deaths from um, cardiovascular disease, inactivity, 
related diseases. And you were talking to um, Jonathan, Dr. Jonathan Kelly about this, weren't you, uh, Adam, about some mm. of the, um, that's kind of his work, isn't it? And so, yeah, yeah, we have this kind of, we have a, a kind of another emergency in terms of transport, maybe not quite as, as pressing as the coronavirus deaths, but, um, but yeah, equally important. I guess then from, from, from quiet way one and, and some of the more neighborhood streets, Ned, you, you obviously experienced what, um, what some many people will have experienced, which, you know, I, I like, um, which is the cycle superhighway, um, uh, along the, uh, along the embankment, which is, um, currently, you know, fit for, fit for purpose. It's probably could be a little bit wider, et cetera, but it, it works. And, um, but then going in off uh, into two two things that really struck me. One is Northumberland Avenue, which is um, I've ridden that road a couple of times and it is awful. Um, and secondly, is um, another road that is typically awful to to cyclists um, uh, and not even it's not even on the map really for people to use uh, on their bike is is the area around Park Lane, which you. Um, I, I not being in London, I've seen lots of great photographs of of, of various different people, um, you know, on this cycle path, which. Um, I must say at first glimpse made me totally impressed. And I understand these things don't happen overnight. Um, they need to, but they don't happen overnight. That's the reality of it. But your, your, your ride revealed really Ned that it's about 150 meters long as we record now. Um, and it sort of just throws you out into a four lane trunk road, um, at, at the end. And that's, that's also probably a, a, a different type of problem. And, and just to finish off, sorry, there's, there's another one in Euston Road that's supposed to be started, and um, that's within TfL's kind of gift to do that. They control that road, and I have a I have another source that lives on the Euston Road who sends me kind of pictures of the road each day. It's pretty nerdy, um, but uh, the cycle lane is not there uh, at time of recording. Um, so these things, uh, and it's happening now. Traffic is going up right now. Yeah, I mean, I can only, as I said, I think in the report, I can only imagine that that is work half done on Park Lane. And so I don't want to, you know, I don't want to condemn the scheme outright because perhaps if they do join it all up, I mean, they, they must join it all up because in its current state, it, it's meaningless. You know, it's actually quite dangerous and misleading almost. Um, so I'm sure that will that will go the length of Park Lane eventually. I see no reason why it shouldn't. But again, I don't. Uh, you know, I rushed. I mean, Euston Road strikes me as a very important road, just like the old Kent Road as well, to create infrastructure like that. Um, Park Lane strikes me as an odd one because, it's, as the name suggests, it's right next to Hyde Park. And Hyde Park, running parallel to that, has a cycle lane that runs in exactly the same direction and serves the same points from A to B. Um, currently, that is kind of shared with pedestrians. Um, slightly dangerously and misleadingly, like they often are. Um, but there's no reason why you couldn't just put barriers up and make make all the tarmac bit that's currently shared bike usage and um, ask the pedestrians kindly to use the grass for a little bit. Um, I see that as a perhaps better solution than plonking it on the road for no apparent reason. Um, so then I don't know. Sometimes I'm, I'm just concerned that there's a there's a tendency to say, to think we can put a bike lane there without causing too much disruption, which is definitely the case in Park Lane. But that doesn't necessarily mean we should put a bike lane there. Look at the thorny issues. Look at your Northumberland avenues. Look at these nasty little points. Consult us, again, as a community, as to which one would really help and see if you can fix that problem. And then you really are sort of winning that battle. Yeah. And I think, uh, I think that makes sense when you're, you know, as a commuter or as a, you know, average Joe uh, in the street riding a bike, you know, this, some of this stuff might not appear logical to you and not that we should give it them too much credence, but you know, the, the, this stuff isn't, 
a given to be popular. You know, there is there is um, discussion from from the usual suspects um, that you know, this is a waste of time, or it's posturing, or it's you know it's not useful. Um, and when you look at um, you know look at the kind of space reallocation, in some respects, that you know that might not always be the best option, but. When you when you dive into this, um, it's 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 trickier because TfL only control around five percent of the road network. So Park Lane is one of those, um, Euston Road is one of those, but there are other sectors like Northumberland Avenue, which I imagine would fall within Westminster City Council, who you know hate cycling. They haven't got a they haven't got a great track record, have they? Westminster? No, no, they not, the, not. They were the, am I right in saying they were the council who ultimately blocked the pedestrianisation of Oxford Street, weren't they? They were the Yes. Yeah, absolutely. They said, we'll do it. And then didn't do, didn't do anything. Um, Mm. and you, you have, um, you have other, um, uh, you know, other issues, um, from, from boroughs around, around, you know, Royal, uh, as I talked to Jonathan Kelly, which we'll get to in a minute, he lives in the borough of Kensington and Chelsea, who are another one with a, with a, not a track, good track record. In fact, TFL cycle lanes generally, uh, go across and then there's a gap in the map for the whole borough where they don't, uh, you know, they don't typically um, cooperate. And then you look at things like Regent's Park, uh, just as an example, you know, Regent's Park is being used uh, again. It's, it's kind of a, a London thing, but it's so bizarre and it must be weird for everyone looking at this, that all the other Royal parks can be closed to motor traffic um, for this reason of social distancing, but Regent's Park can't because there is a little known commission called a paving commission, which is something to do with the queen. Uh, I think, um, that own and control part of the park and all the traffic element. And that's just mental because they're the ones that are sort of kicking and screaming and, 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 and not changing. Um, the, uh, the paving commission is, isn't anything to do with the, um, isn't anything to do with the crown. It's, uh, like a Georgian quango, uh, that was set <laughs> up, I think, <laughs> I think it's appointed by the prime minister. It's very strange, and it's it's sort of a sort of slightly non-democratic body that represents some of the wealthiest houses in in the country. Uh, and basically, it just opens and closes the gates. Um, but it's uh, it's exempt from freedom of information request, and they're very sort of secretive. And uh, yeah, I was in touch with them for a while, but then the person I was talking to left. And uh, and dis- sort of disappeared. I don't know. Oh, yeah, he was hard. To- I couldn't get hold of anyone there afterwards. So yeah, it's very it's very mysterious. But yeah, you think that ultimately, um, you know, anyone looking to create these uh, new cycle routes would be, you know, wherever wherever they are, would be looking to the existing public transport network and creating something alongside, like they did in Milan, and that's what they should be doing in, in cities to to take the pressure off those public transport networks and. Um, yeah, rather than like Ned said, just putting it on a wide road that kind of looks easy to do. I, I can't quite in our in our quest to figure out whether it's the chicken or the egg. Can we define our terms here? What's the chicken and what's the egg? I'm not quite sure, but um, or the cart and the horse. But just to give you a sense of, uh, I guess the egg is the golden egg of kind of people getting on their bikes, but I'm not quite sure where the chicken fits into that. Anyway, um, so- It just sounded but, clever. It just sounded clever, but I don't, yeah, yeah, it was clever. <laughs> Maybe too clever for me. But by the way, this is a bit of a tangent, but did anyone see that amazing shot of a, the policeman guiding the chicken across the road in Perth? <laughs> in Scotland. No, but I need that, chicken, I need that content. A chicken trying to cross the road and a policeman helping him. <laughs> amazing, <laughs> amazing. Anyway, um, um, 
was I trying to say? Oh, yes. So a bit of anecdotal heft to this, right, is um, I this morning I just popped down to the guy I mentioned in our first podcast, Mark of Lady Will Cycles down at the end of the road, who has this tiny little, tiny little business, one man band sort of thing. And I hadn't seen him for a few weeks. And um, I said, how's it going? And he looked shattered. He is. He said he's done his entire summer's turnover and then some already. He said, I said, give us an estimate of how many, you know, how much more repairs and sales of secondhand bikes and stuff you're doing. And he goes, stop, thought about it. He said, I think it's probably I've done four and a half or five times the amount of business I normally would. He said he's got, he counted them out the other day, his emails that land making inquiries into his little office, seven times the number of emails. And it's the same story over and over again. He said, people are literally getting old bikes out of the shed, bringing them down. They've realized that all the tires are flat. Everything's gone a bit rusty and they're coming in. And he said, it's creating all sorts of problems. A, his mental health is suffering because he can't keep up with the demands. He's, he's li literally triaging people and saying, how essential is your work? And can I help you first? And you might have to wait a little bit longer. And he's also saying, you know, one of the unfortunate things is that prices now are going up quite steeply because the supply lines of components and um, spare tubes and everything is drying up from China and stuff's not stuff's landing in ports and getting kind of stuck there for and um, suppliers, unfortunately, are sort of jacking the prices up because the demand is so high and the supply is so so little. So, so the the, the, um, the demand for people is there and um, and it's urgently it urgently needs to be met by our our um, communities. I think. It's a bit of a strange one with the bike shops because prior to this happening, um, the cycling industry was in a, you know, it was kind of in a difficult situation. They were struggling against internet retailers selling things for cheaper than they could buy them wholesale. And then um, there was all the stuff with Brexit and, you know, how are we going to get things from abroad and the prices going up with that. And then a lot of bike shops having to close. It was really the ones that were diversifying that were sticking around. And then now to be sort of at the forefront of kind of transport infrastructure <laughs> in this way, it's quite astonishing turnaround, really. And the last big cycling boom in retail in um, in bike shops in this country happened when um, Bradley Wiggins won the Olympic gold medal in the Tour de France yeah. in 2012. And in the immediate aftermath of that, that's quite well documented. But once everybody had bought themselves a who wanted to had bought themselves a three grand road bike, they didn't want to buy another one the next year, and that kind of fizzled out like a straw yeah. fire to some extent. But this is completely different. You know, this is what the bikes that they've run out of now are the 400 pounds. 350 pound 500 pound price point bikes so it's much 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 more democratic um demands that's going on at the moment so that links us in nicely with the with the interview i did with philip danton uh he's the chairman of the bicycle association and he uh he works with all the major uh retailers uh independents and and also manufacturers um to to combat these problems and here's what he had to say Philip, thanks for joining me. Um, what's uh, how is the bike industry doing at the moment? Well, the bike industry, uh, as you can imagine, Adam, is um, absolutely working as hard as it possibly could at the moment. Um, it started um, as soon as bike shops were allowed to stay open, which um, the Bicycle Association was um, very keen to explain to government the importance in terms of servicing bikes. So all the way through the um, pandemic and the lockdown, uh, bicycle shops have been allowed to be open, and many have been, although some of the biggest shops were closed till the end of March. And um, that meant that March was a pretty 
uh, dire period for bicycle sales. And indeed, initially, of course, people were so anxious that they probably cancelled a lot of the orders that they were expecting. And then all of a sudden, of course, when people uh, started to wake up to the fact that it was an incredibly attractive way to travel, um, socially distanced on roads that were quiet, um, the demand has uh, really ramped up. And all of our contacts in the industry are reporting tremendous sales of um, what we would call um, everyday cheaper priced bikes. Um, They're not sporty bikes. They're not mountain bikes or BMX. They're everyday bikes for everyday short urban travel, which is a real change in the UK market. I guess uh, we're we're a little bit worried here at Streets Ahead. We've been talking about it, about the potential lag that there is between infrastructure getting built, albeit temporary, and the influx of new people cycling. There's an article out in the BBC that suggests that three in five people think cycling on the road in the UK is too dangerous, which we, you and I both both know and have known for for, for a long time. But do you think this new infrastructure can happen quickly enough, or are we going to kind of get ourselves into a bit of a uh, a bit of a mess with chicken and egg? Well, um, I'm, I've been around in this game, as you know, Adam, for rather a long time. And so um, the only way you can um, survive is to be an optimist. Um, there have been a number of, of interesting initiatives, um, which in the past have generally fizzled out. But this is completely different. This is absolutely different. And this is the opportunity, literally, of a lifetime to change the way that we both travel and think about what we want our towns and cities and villages to be like. Um, So I I really do think is an extraordinary moment and one um, which has fantastic potential. But um, I was actually reading what uh, Chris Boardman was saying the other day in Manchester, and he was saying, this is giving me sleepless nights. Um, and um, his uh, his remark was, um, at, we're at a crossroads, it could go either way, and I don't know which. And I think that is exactly the issue, because, as you say, most people uh, will say that cycling either is, looks, or seems, or feels too dangerous, a combination of those. Um, and that has really put them off cycling on road, f- even for quite short urban trips for general everyday transport. The risk that the industry sort of has the wrong bikes to sell, uh, you know, in terms of what you go into a bike shop in Holland and buy and a bike shop here is quite different. Yeah. What I suppose uh, people would call the mix of bikes, um, the rain, the different ranges of bikes. You're right, um, and it's probably not different, uh, although it may be different in scale, to um, retail and clothing, for example. Um, that what retailers, um, cycle retailers, were are expecting or were expecting to uh, sell has been ordered, um, is on the way, and probably isn't what they now wish that they had in terms of the mix of bikes. So I think there is a, a, a lag inevitably. Um, it's a lag which may take some weeks to put right because nearly everything, as you know better than I, um, that we uh, sell in the world of bicycles comes from the Far East. Um, and that takes time. Um, and that's true across the world. So it's not just that we might not have anticipated it correctly. It's that 
probably nobody has. Um, so that is going to take time to um, adjust to. And uh, of course, uh, if you've worked in the bike trade yourself, you'll know that inevitable sods law applies that just as you get lots and lots of these everyday bikes, uh, if the infrastructure isn't there, um, people actually won't want them. Um, so it is terribly difficult. And I think one of the long-term lessons for the UK cycle industry, which we are now beginning seriously to think about, is what does economic resilience mean to an industry that has such long supply chains that takes such a long time, costs so much in transport, in packaging, um, to reach our shores. And I think that we will be working very hard and hopefully engaging with government too, to uh, start to address how the industry can be much more resilient to shocks and um, sudden changes of this kind or any kind in future. And that's going to mean inevitably somehow or other shorter supply chains uh, and ways of working that are quite different from those we've become used to over the last 20 years. There, there is a chance, I guess, that um, we will get infrastructure. You know, I'm an optimist as well. Um, and in pockets of the country, you know, there will be a big uptake in, in cycling, like in you know, Cambridge, where modal share can be something Indeed. like 30%. We might find new Cambridge uh, is across the country. Do you think there's a risk that, the, uh, from what you know, that the industry will, will quite simply run out of bikes? Um, well, we desperately hope not, and I'm sure that everybody is working extraordinarily hard to um, gather what what they can as quickly as they can. Um, one of the things, Adam, that um, you may know um, the government has just uh, said is that they will uh, offer a uh, voucher scheme to people who will get their bikes out of their garden sheds. And... Um, uh, it's very hard to estimate, uh, but there are lots of figures floating around that there might really be as many as 7 million bikes um, in garden sheds, um, not not just owned by enthusiasts um, who have several, um, but by people who um, haven't done it for a long time and put it in the shed. So I think that I think one way and another, we will, um, as we ne nearly always do, um, we will get through. Uh, and I think the opportunity that um, this voucher scheme will give to maybe um, give people the opportunity to say, well, actually, you know, if, if I'm going to get a significant grant from government, um, actually, I will get my bike out and I will get it. I will get it repaired and fit for use and make it safe. Um, and that that could, I think, produce you know, three or four hundred thousand bikes at very, very short, at very short notice. Fascinating. Well, thank you, Philip. Best of uh, best of luck in the kind of weeks and months ahead. It's going to be busy for you, I'm sure. Yes, we all certainly need that luck. And they've been having this problem in Leicester as well with the um, one thing they've been doing that um, Adam Clark was telling me that the deputy mayor there is that they've been on a mission to basically um, refurbish loads of secondhand bikes and give them to people who need them to get around. And uh, yeah, the police have been donating bikes, you know, when a bike's abandoned or it's retrieved and it's stolen and they don't know who the owner is. And um, and yeah, they're sort of refurbishing them. And they, they've been helping out their um, key workers, among others, with, with these secondhand bikes. And I think they've done... 200 odd and they've got a waiting list of about 200 as well it's, it's quite amazing really 
but yeah, I mean, there's there's some statistics somewhere about the number of bikes that are left in sheds, and they they are out there in sheds around the country. It's just a case of liberating them. I've got uh, Councillor Adam Clark with me, who's Deputy Mayor of Leicester. Now, Leicester created the UK's first pop-up bike lane, which was a 500 metre key workers corridor near Leicester Royal Infirmary. And that happened on April the 27th. And a few days later, the bike lane was expanded a further 500 metres. And Adam Clark, I believe you were behind this bike lane and subsequent changes which are going to be happening in, in Leicester. Is that right? Yeah, as soon as it became apparent that there was going to be a lockdown, we saw, you know, we saw both issues and opportunities. And we looked very closely at where we could create space for cycling, particularly for key workers needing to access their place of work. And the key worker corridor um, was something we were able to do really, really quickly. And like I say, to enable people who needed to, we need to get to work to get to work. Um, And it's gone down really well. Um, So we're obviously um, uh, working on technical feasibility of doing a lot more. Can you tell us what you're planning, what you're hoping to do? So, look, we're not um, running from a standing start. We have a lot of plans in the back pocket. Um, so we we have already secured a lot of funding through the Transforming Cities programme. But over many, many years, we've developed what we think are what Leicester needs in terms of active travel. And we've obviously gone cap in hand to government to try and achieve um, our ambition. Um, our ambition is, is way ahead of the funding that has been available to us. So we've got... We've got drawings and plans, so we can now deliver those plans in pop-up form in a way that's strategic, that meets the, the need of what, what we're calling the new normal. So it's it's all kind of been driven by the mayor, Peter Salisbury, who was Leicester's first mayor, elected initially in 2011, and then sort of embarks on a programme of reducing space for cars and increasing space for people to walk and cycle. And then, of course, in 2012, you found the bones of Richard III in a council car park, famously. And that kind of provided a bit more of an impetus, didn't it? So you've created bike tracks, you've turned some car parks into public squares. You took down a flyover. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing some footage of that coming down. And um, you... We shortly before the crisis, we completed the London Road corridor, which basically takes you on one of the main arterial routes into the city centre, um, past the railway station, um, which really was the beginnings of us creeping beyond the city centre and the inner ring road um, out towards neighbourhoods. Um, and the strategy has always been to to create a hub um, within the city from which spokes move out from, and so and and, and so that's what we've been doing in terms of the fixed infrastructure. Um, like we've, we've opened another public square this year. Um, we took down a, a fish market a couple of years, meat and fish market a couple of years ago, um, created a new public square. We named that shortly before the crisis. We had uh, Charles and Camilla coming to name Green Dragon Square. Um, our walking and cycling um, uh, behaviour change work has continued apace. Um, we've moved um, to through the north of the city, through Belgrave Gate, which takes you to where that flyover you mentioned once was, where there is now a lovely green, um, uh, effectively a green roundabout um, with a cycle path and walking path running straight through the middle of it to the Golden Mile, um, which hosts one of the biggest Diwali celebrations in the world normally. 
<laughs> and do you think that having more space for people to walk and cycle has helped during the crisis? Well, uh, yeah, well, absolutely. In terms of, the, you know, the, the social distancing messages that we need, you know, that we've had to put out, I mean, to have that space to walk and cycle has been, uh, you know, incredibly important and health giving, I suppose. Uh, but I think we thought that anyway, you know, I think having more space to walk and cycle has been something that we've, you know, that we felt is is important for the environmental reasons, for the health reasons and for the economic reasons. Of course, d- during this moment where we want people to, to be healthy, we want people to be able to take their exercise and we want key workers to be able to get to work in that healthy, sustainable way then of course during the crisis it's been um, it's been critical and in terms of what you're looking to create now these are already plans that you had in your back pocket so to speak that were going to um, link up the existing routes and plazas that you've created to generate a bit more of a network and perhaps into the suburbs yeah, absolutely. So most of what we will be bringing forward in the next couple of weeks, there will be a kind of an equivalent hard infrastructure plan that's either um, that's either funded or that, that is planned or that has been the seedling of an idea within the organisation anyway. And, you know, we've got some some really exciting stuff that might be 50 years down the line, as it were, that's uh, that's kind of within the organisation. So making sure that the neighbourhoods feel connected. Also, there's, there's quite quite a few deprived neighbourhoods in our city and we want to give those deprived neighbourhoods uh, affordable links into employment areas, um, including the city centre, but also on the outskirts of the city where we've got, you know, the, where there are employment opportunities. But it's something that I've said for a long time is that if you can't get to work, you can't work. Yeah. And so what sort of time scale are we looking at in terms of implementing further measures? Um, we're looking, you know, we're, we're looking in, in the next week or two, um, we will be, you know, we'll, we'll be out there sticking out cones and doing more pop-up cycle lanes and other sorts of pop-up infrastructure. Um, we'll be going in very quickly. As soon as we saw the success within 24 hours, the success of the Key Worker Corridor, we were putting an order in for 2,000 cones, which will give us quite a few more kilometres of um, of pop-up infrastructure. I, I would have liked to have seen that in the Amazon basket just as our head of highways checked out. Um, but uh, I don't know where you go for 2,000 cones. Um, and I'm sure that um, <laughs> cone, cone, cone manufacturers and, and manufacturers of, 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 of wands and armadillos and all these amazing, uh, you know, really cool bits of infrastructure that help to segregate cyclists are going to be rubbing their hands at the moment, I think. Yeah, there's going to be. It's going. To, I, I keep thinking it's like the um, the PPE of road infrastructure in 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 its scarcity and demand potentially. Or the toilet roll, if you think back to the, the beginning. Toilet of the, roll. Yeah, the beginning of the yeah. <laughs> that, that, that was a piece of essential infrastructure, if ever there was one. <clears throat> <laughs> True. Um, what can other cities learn from Leicester? Are there lessons? Are there lessons that you would like to share? Yeah, I mean, I'm really passionate about recognizing the connectivity between behavior change and infrastructure and seeing them as real bedfellows so you know i get really excited about the the infrastructure bit of it and a lot of us get very excited about the infrastructure bit of it but it's nothing without that working with communities um supporting people to feel safe supporting people to have the kit so we've been giving out bikes for free we've been overwhelmed with our bike aid scheme where we've been giving out bikes and fixing bikes every day in an independent bike shop in the city um somebody's having their 
their bike um, serviced and repaired so that they can use it again. We've given out um, 164 bikes to key workers mainly. We've got 200 on a waiting list. Um, we're, you know, we, we're asking for donations because we're running out of sources. One of our independent bike um, shops based in the city or based in the county, actually Rutland Cycles, um, has donated bikes. The p- local police have donated bikes as part of Bike Aid. We're providing, we're providing the bikes. We're providing lights. We're providing locks. We're providing training. We're providing travel planning, um, and we're providing the infrastructure as well. So it's that holistic approach is really, really important, and that sense of partnership to, um, you know, without organisations like Sustrans, we, you know, we wouldn't have the agency really to to deliver what we want to do, um, nor would we have the capacity and and the voice to do it either. So I think, um, yeah, partnerships recognise the wider picture beyond the infrastructure bit which gets the headlines give people the um the opportunity to 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 feel the freedom of um, being able to get to places by bike yeah fantastic well thank you adam super interesting to talk to you and um i look forward to hearing what's going to happen with the new temporary infrastructure watch this space it'll get filled very quickly with traffic cones and wands so listening to the to the de- deputy mayor there, um, it's clear that a lot of this has come from like supporting key workers, which is which is um, something that we've we've talked about on Streets Ahead before. Um, the really interesting thing, as you say, Laura, is that uh, they are not only providing the infrastructure, but they are providing the bikes in some respect, which is often um, you know a barrier to entry that um, some people might not might not consider, um, especially with what we talked about um, from a, from an accessibility point of view. But then also, um, you know, there's a lot of people that are kind of stuck in you know in a, in suburban areas, are stuck in car poverty and other things like that. So it's it's hard for people to find that kind of couple hundred quid to 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 make a change in in in, in many senses. I think the the really uh, helpful thing is that they've provided bikes to NHS workers, and that's almost setting, uh, I guess, an example of, of the value that cycling has uh, at the moment and, and what, it, what it can do. Um, and, and interestingly, I've been talking to uh, Dr. Jonathan Kelly, who uh, works at St. Bart's NHS Trust. Basically, he's a very popular guy at the moment because he's been giving out, you know, giving out Bromptons for, for key workers. And the amount of new people that, um, that he's had come into cycling is really, really positive. But my, my concern and my worry that I put to him is, will those people continue to cycle? And what are the barriers that are keeping them from, from, from keeping going? Because already, um, you know, traffic, uh, traffic is in, increasing. So Jonathan's got a good take on it. And let's, uh, let's listen to what he has to say. Jonathan, thank you for joining us on Streets Ahead. Um, so your your day job's obviously in the NHS, and what's been uh, what's been really interesting for me, kind of follow you, following you via Twitter, um, is just the amount of new people that have got into cycling within the NHS. Tell us a little bit about kind of um, uh, I guess who who and how all these new people have uh, come on board. Yeah, so it's, it's been really great over the last um, few weeks, even despite the, the COVID pandemic. But it, it kind of started last year when I was interested in cycling. I thought there was more of a role for cycling to play. So um, I was really trying to get bikes in to improve how people can cycle between a hospital sites. We've got some really nice routes between the hospitals, and I thought more people could cycle. And I always also thought there was a really good opportunity for our cardiac rehab program who do kind of gym-based exercises to take it outdoors a bit and do some cycle rehab. So 
we started the conversations going, but um, in the recent months with the pandemic, people have increasingly said to me they don't want to be on public transport. They want to try different ways of getting into work, um, particularly around avoiding uh, contracting or the spread of the virus. So I've been luckily working with guys from Brompton who have done a great campaign with their hire bikes and their wheels for heroes. And we've been sourcing bikes and giving them to people who who need them to get to work. And it's been really amazing hearing their individual stories. Maybe we can get onto them later. But um, it's really varied. Um, lots of lots of women, lots of diverse backgrounds. And it's really kind of far away from the kind of stereotypical cyclists that you hear people perhaps complain about. Mm. And... Um what talk obviously each story is going to be different and each approach is going to be different, but just typically talking to your colleagues, what's, um, what, what are they, what are they saying with their first experience on bikes? I'm kind of seeing a lot on your feed of, I haven't cycled since I was a child or, you know, I have, I never thought this would be for me. What's the kind of, uh, general gut feedback from people once they, once they start. So I guess typical of London, you've got lots of people who, didn't always grow up in London. So we've got people from all over the world and all over the UK who used to cycle in their hometowns and home countries, whether it is in Spain, Portugal, Holland, um, or even up in Edinburgh. And they've said they, they used to enjoy cycling, they love cycling, but they've never really thought about doing it in London because it just seems too intimidating and overbearing, particularly the traffic. But they, it's, it's the overriding kind of thing inside people that they, they really want to do it and it's about being able to enable them to do it. So when they've started, first of all, you give them the bike and you're met with a massive smile and it's like a Christmas present. And it feels like Christmas. Everyone's really happy and it makes it a really kind of fun experience. And then when you catch up with them after they've started cycling, they're just so enthusiastic about it. They can't believe how different it is. One thing is um, it's usually faster or the same time as the public transport and not crammed into tin cans and they're really enjoying the open air. A lot of people live down Battersea or live in East London, so they follow the Thames. So they've got really nice cycle routes into the various hospitals and Barts Health. People just really enjoy the experience and they, they kind of didn't realise that was out there in London, I suppose, until they, they got on the two wheels. We've been talking today and Ned's been out on a ride this morning uh, to, to central London from where he lives in Lewisham. And you know, Ned's a confident kind of dare I say it, keen, keen cyclists. And we, I guess we're cumulatively worried um, that, that perhaps the, the change required or the infrastructure required is so vast that uh, it either won't happen in time or it won't potentially happen, you know, at all. Um, obviously, your, your uh, split into two questions. You're in the uh, Royal Borough of Kensington, Chelsea, who are kind of known for uh, inaction. Um, you know what? What I guess is the the risk to your staff and the NHS if councils don't don't get it right. And are you worried that you know effectively you'll have all this newfound enthusiasm? Oh, I've got a new bike and great. You know who wouldn't want a brand new shiny Brompton um, to ride around on? But when it comes to the reality of it week in, week out, the animosity on the roads or the traffic or the hostility, whether it's inferred or whether it's d designed hostility, um, will put people off. Do, you, does that worry you, I guess, long-term? Yeah, it's, it's, it's at the forefront of my mind because as much as we're making progress with the active traveller, but equally I know we're in a bit of a, a kind of unusual times of quiet roads. It's also summer, so 
you'll have the inevitable new cyclists finding autumn and winter and trying to work their way through that. But in terms of councils in action, that's that's one of the things that has kind of prompted me to do the second kind of action that we're trying to seek change across London. Um, our staff, we've got 16,000 people in our trust, so they live and travel all over London. And I've got not just myself, so I travel in from Kensington, Chelsea, but I know people who travel in from Richmond, Twickenham, Ealing, Acton, Shepherd's Bush, Neasden, Harlesden. And um, inevitably, some of those people travel through Kensington, Chelsea. And there's a prime example, there's a cancer clinical nurse specialist who I've given a Brompton to, and she'll be coming in from Ealing. Um, her most convenient route would be down the Uxbridge Road through Shepherd's Bush um, and then up onto Holland Park Avenue and across Kensington, Chelsea, eventually mm. hitting the Royal Parks. Um, at the moment, it's kind of fine because traffic levels were low. It was different. Pe- people were finding it easy. Um, but still, there was incidents of cars, high speed through the areas and things like that. Mm. But as the traffic starts to return, and I've been going down there the last few days, Holland Park Avenue is getting busy again. And I am thinking, well, what, what will my clinical nurse specialist who's new on a bike um, feel as she kind of engages with Holland Park Avenue again and starts to see the traffic increasing and how will that make her feel? So that is very much on my mind. Um, and equally across um, East London, there's the challenges some colleagues face is not knowing the routes to take. So when I started cycling in East London to Whips, Newham, um, and out that way, there is some actually good routes, but it's about finding them and knowing them. So canals, parks, the Olympic Park, and then once you get into Waltham Forest, the mini Holland scheme, it kind of forms a nice convenient network that allows me not to be on the road that much, or if I am, it's segregated. So it's helping people find those routes as well. But when you've got boroughs like Kensington and Chelsea, there is just so little provision. It's hard to help people find a route through there. Um, yeah, I understand that um, the other thing that you're working on um, is, you know, having uh, hospital CEOs and trusts CEOs writing to local councils and, and kind of encouraging them to implement temporary infrastructure. How's, how's that going? How's that been received? Uh, so it's going really well. Um, so it started off with a discussion in our hospital at St. Bart's around the kind of, we've had so many people start cycling, not just through Brompton, but with their own bikes or with Santander's. It's easily over 150 people have started cycling just um, that I'm aware of. And it was around very much, there's a wellbeing part of that um, work stream. So a lot of people who are cycling, they're saying they want to incorporate physical activity into their daily routine. The cycling is really good for their mental wellbeing. It helps them unwind a bit, a bit of a decompressor before and after a, a hard, long day at work. Um, so we start thinking, well, when the traffic does start to come back, how will we enable that to continue for our staff because people clearly want to cycle and walk to work. So we wrote a letter to the City of London um, who are quite proactive and quite engaged. Um, and then we started talking to our other hospitals in Bart's House, so Whips, Newham, Royal London. And they, the CEOs there were really engaged and on board with the idea. And they, they've written to their um, local councils. Um, and then we started writing to our surrounding councils and then we got some other hospitals on board. So Barking, Havering, Redbridge, University Hospitals um, wrote to their outer boroughs in North East London. St George's then wrote to Wandsworth. And it's, it's picking up steam that 
what I'm really impressed is with is with the with the recognition that the organisations and the execs have for the role cycling has, um, and it's certainly been helped by the DFT announcement and the mayor's plans for street space. Brilliant. Well, thank you, Jonathan. We'll definitely see um, over the next couple of weeks what how it plays out. And um, no, thank you for sincerely for the the work that you're doing in the NHS and also um, especially getting more people on uh, bikes, which is uh, which is just amazing to see. So I think we can all agree that um, the uh, cycling is going to play a real critical part. Um, but but you know, there's a lot of people here saying the saying the same things, um, which is you need to you need to build it um and you need to build it fast um law you're obviously working on this topic like all the time and it's moving and every time we talk something else has has happened but given that you also understand the like the complexities of the nerdiness the the stuff that no one really needs to know but but we <laughs> we, we do is like or, do, do you think this is realistic or do you, you know do you think that we're going to have some cities doing good things and we're going to have some cities doing doing nothing whatever the government says about forcing them to do it you know it's 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 really not going to happen in the way that we we hope optimistically yeah i think ultimately as always with this kind of thing it's down to political leadership it you know it's it's not only about having the power you know cities like leicester having a mayor who who wants this stuff to happen and sees the benefits in you know so many ways from health to economy to just you know making it a nice place to be um but also um you know it although the government said that councils should be doing this Ultimately, if they don't want to do it, if they don't get it, they don't believe in it, they don't see that um, taking road space away from motor traffic could be a good thing and, and maybe are afraid of uh, upsetting motorists or maybe not understanding that people don't always want to travel by car and that uh, removing car space doesn't um, impact businesses negatively, then I think those councils are going to be the ones that, that don't act very, uh, you know, to the same extent. But it does make it harder for them not to because they they ultimately have been told that they should be looking at this. And if they don't, they need to give a good reason why. I think some of the messaging has to be clear as well. I think it has to be loud and they have to back. They have to have the courage of their convictions. It feels a little bit like it's being handed down as a policy that has been kind of imposed on certain officials by the situation they find themselves in. And again, as Chris Boardman pointed out to us a few weeks ago, and Laura, you've rightly reiterated, it's about belief, isn't it? If you don't believe in it, if you don't want to do it, as Chris said, it ain't going to happen. And I'd like, I'd like to hear some of the messaging that the government seems to be, in other circumstances, incredibly good at uh, and, very, and very loud with, uh, j- just not you know, ratcheted up a few decibels. Because, you know, for, for example, when these temporary lanes go in and they're quite unsightly things, they look a bit like roadworks. And if you don't know why that's being done, Perhaps it needs um, uh, perhaps it needs some some displays along the side or regularly repeated what this is for and why it's important and why it matters and why it's for the benefit not just to the people who are using it but it's for the benefit that's there for every single one of us because every cyclist and pedestrian you see on it is one person less on the bus one person less on the tube one car fewer on the road that's the point make that point loud and clear and don't do it um, w- with one hand tied behind your back do it like you mean it. 
So thank you to all of our guests who've come and uh, spoken and thank you to the Streets of London for accommodating Ned on his ride today. Um, thanks to Ned and Adam. Thanks to you, our listeners. You have been listening to Streets Ahead. Let us know what you think. We are at Pod Streets Ahead. And if you know other people who would like this podcast, then please do share it with them. It really helps. And finally, wherever you're listening, please do rate and review the podcast. It means more people find us. Bye. Bye. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.